Part Three: The Irreligious Implications. Chapter Thirteen: Who do you think you are, God? If the life and death of Socrates were those of a sage, the life and death of Jesus were those of a god. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Nobody likes someone who acts as if he or she is the center of the universe. We've all met people like that, and we never want to meet them again. I suppose the one exception to this could be God Himself. Our relational sensitivities allow for a double standard where God is concerned, because, well, He is the center of the universe after all. Without Him, we wouldn't even be here to discuss how much we dislike arrogant, self-centered people. So God can say, "Worship me," or "Serve me," or "Do my will." And it seems appropriate because he is inviting us to center our minds and lives on the highest good. However, if anyone else gave us those kinds of messages, our response would be, "Who do you think you are, God?" So now we must ask, what gave Jesus the right to act as he did? Who was he to reinterpret Torah, challenge tradition, undo tribalism, redefine territory, and act as if he was the temple, the locus of God's presence on earth? We cannot avoid the fact that Jesus believed he was the instrument through which God would bring about major changes in the spiritual landscape of planet Earth. Our earliest records of Jesus' teaching reveal an undeniable self-awareness of his unique identity, which is the basis of his unique impact. For instance, in one parable, Jesus refers to other prophets and messengers of God as God's servants. But in the same story, he contrasts those servants with his own status as God's only son. Mark twelve one to twelve, Jesus was convinced that to know him was to know God. John eight nineteen and John fourteen six to ten. He also claimed to be the door through which people would enter eternal life. John ten seven to nine, and to be the very embodiment of truth. John fourteen six, and on at least one occasion, Jesus accepted worship from someone who called him my Lord and my God. John twenty twenty eight. So here is the problem for people who like to think of the historical Jesus as just a good moral teacher or a wise philosopher. If we view Jesus as merely a teacher, preacher, or prophet, then we have to admit that Jesus was incredibly arrogant and totally deluded about his own identity. This raises the question: If he can't even be trusted on the matter of his own identity, why should we consider him a worthwhile teacher on any other topic? The philosopher C.S. Lewis explained this predicament best. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice: either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Throughout the four existing first-century Greco-Roman biographies of Jesus, called the Gospels, Jesus says and does things that would lead anyone who met him today to say, "Who do you think you are, God?" How can someone who seems so giving, kind, and compassionate 
who seems like love personified, also be so incredibly egotistical? Could it be that his sense of self-importance is somehow justified? As we saw in part two of this book, Jesus had the nasty habit of offering people forgiveness for all their sins. That sounds compassionate enough, but it makes little sense if Jesus was just another prophet or teacher. By offering forgiveness for sins that did not involve him in the first place, Jesus meddles in something that should be between a person and his or her God. I can forgive someone who offends me, and you can forgive someone who offends you. But what if you or I tried to offer forgiveness to someone else who had never offended us directly? Suppose you were to walk into a home where a husband had just said something hurtful to his wife, and you said to him, that's all right, you're forgiven. How absurd. You have no business forgiving someone for something that they didn't do to you. In fact, you would be robbing his wife of the role only she should play, for only the wounded party should decide if the offender ought to be forgiven. What if you went for therapy to help you deal with some emotional scar left by your mother, and the therapist said, Forgiveness is the only way to resolve the pains of the past. Of course, that would be a fine thing to say, a very Jesus thing to say. But what if the therapist's next move was to pick up the phone and dial your mother's house and tell her that she is forgiven, and then tell you that it is all taken care of? You would be understandably outraged. Who is your therapist to forgive your mother for sins committed against you? You see, we must pursue the answer to the question, who is Jesus to offer forgiveness for every wrong done? It seems to me that he is either an egotistical meddler or Jesus embodies God to us in some unique way, because every sin is ultimately a sin against God, as David says in Psalm 51.4. By saying something as audacious as, I am the way, as Jesus does in John 14.6 to his disciples, Jesus fundamentally challenged all of the how-to systems of the spiritual world. The way is not the Ten Commandments, the Eightfold Path, the Five Pillars, the Four Noble Truths, or any other of the systems of salvation stewarded by the religions of our planet. God Himself is the way. He has come to earth to share His message, to show us His love, and to shut down religion once and for all. We can embrace this and the freedom it brings, or we can cling to the religious systems for the comfort and security they bring. But we cannot do both without disastrous results. A few years after Jesus lived, a former religious leader who gave up everything to follow Christ wrote, For there is one God, and there is one who brings God and human beings together, the man Christ Jesus. That's the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5. In their first century context, these are some of the most spiritually subversive words in the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul, formerly a religious Pharisee, concluded that his religious system of Torah observance and animal sacrifice was no longer the way to connect with God. Before was a system of us turning to laws, turning to the temple, turning to the priest, turning to sacrifice that would eventually lead us to God. But now God, through Jesus, had simply come to us, cutting through the system. I am convinced that religion does not bring us closer to God. In fact, it just gets in the way. We are connected to God through a relationship with a person, a person who had the audacity to say, I am the way. Again, as the Apostle Paul wrote, For there is one God, and there is only one who brings God and human beings together, and that is the man Christ Jesus.